Well, thank you. It is a real honor to once again be able to teach a class here at the church and certainly to teach a class on a subject like Romans because I've been immersed in that book for many, many years. In fact, I had the privilege of being one of the guest uh, uh, contributing editors uh, for one of the Bible translations of the book of Romans. So it's a, it's a book that I'm very familiar with, but there's always something new to discover. Every time I read it, I find something else about it. And so I know you've, you've probably been through the book of Romans with different classes on different occasions, and you've got outline after outline in your Bible. And so what I propose to do for, the, for tonight and the next five weeks is to deal with some of the major themes that Paul deals with in his letter to the Romans. Not the outline of the, of the book, but the, the major topics that he touches on. Because this is not only the longest of, of all Paul's letters, but also it has had the greatest theological influence, as Pastor intimated, even the, um, the Reformation was prompted by some of the teachings from the book of Romans. And so this church in Rome is quite a remarkable church. The city itself was founded back in 753 BC, but in the days of King uh, or of the Caesar Augustus, it was totally transformed. He said, I found a city of wood and I left a city of marble because he really changed the whole city. You can't hear? Oh, well, I'll try and speak even louder. The city of Rome was the one of the most remarkable cities in the ancient world. Not only was it the capital of the Roman Empire, notice they didn't call it the Italian Empire, no, because Rome was the focus. Rome was the city, and that's where it all spread out from. Conquer Rome, and you have conquered the ancient Mediterranean world because that was the focus of a lot of the attention of those days. According to legend or tradition, the church in the city of Rome was founded by the apostles Paul and Peter. When did Peter go to Rome? Not till the very end of his life. No, but the Romans came on the day of Pentecost, there were visitors from Rome, according to Acts chapter 2 and verse 10. And from that city, there radi radiated out the gospel of Christ over much, not only of the Italian peninsula, but over much of the central area of the Mediterranean because yes in a sense 
Peter founded the church even though he didn't go. But the people who came to hear him went and they took the gospel back with them. The church there was expelled under Claudius Caesar and then it was rejuvenated or reestablished and it was reestablished not as a central church but as five different houses, house churches. If you look in uh, chapter 16, you'll see there's a reference there to in verse uh, 5 to Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus and the church that meets in their house. And then again, further down, if you follow it through, you will see that there are others referred to and churches meeting in their house. Verse 10, the household of Aristobulus. Verse 11, the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Further down in verse 14, Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers with them. And then in 15, Philologus, Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. There were five that we know of churches that all met in different homes. And from each of those centers, the gospel was going forth and reaching not just the families, but the neighbors, the friends, and God was transforming the city because of those churches. At first, the whole, the whole uh, city or the, the, the church in Rome was ruled over by the elders, the leaders of each of those churches. And then in the fourth century, they decided that they wanted to go the way that some of the other churches had gone, and they elected a bishop, uh, one who would be over all the elders and over the, the whole situation. And from that came the Bishop of Rome, and from that came the idea of a pope, and, uh, well, you can tell how far the influence of that city spread, because uh, even today, the Roman Catholic Church is one of the largest denominations of Christians in the world. And so God used what began with a group of visitors coming to Jerusalem, listening to the message on the day of Pentecost. Paul wanted to visit there and to have his oar in and say something in that area. He wanted to go and this is what he, he says in, uh, in chapter 15. He said, that the, the now verse 23 now there's no more place for me to work in these regions and since I've been longing for many years to see you I plan to do so when I go to Spain I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there because I've enjoyed your company for a while now however I'm on my way to Jerusalem but after I've delivered the gifts for the poor there, then I will be 
coming by Rome on my way to Spain. For Paul, it was just going to be an incidental visit. As it was, God had other plans. God said, you're going to spend more than just a few days here on your way to Spain. You're going to spend the rest of your life here. Because that's where Paul was captured, was imprisoned, and eventually lost his life. But during that time, according to the book of Acts, he witnessed, and even when he was chained between two gods, he was witnessing to the gods and leading them to faith in Christ. And although the Roman authorities kept changing gods on him, yet the next two gods got converted. Change them again. Next two got converted. Oh, this was a growing church, not because of any specific effort on any person's part, but because it was God's plan that he was going to use this community to extend the gospel of Christ. When we come to look at Paul's letter to the Romans, we find that it was it's a, a semi-formal type of letter. It was not written in a casual way. It starts with what they, is called in the academic world, the proem, and then the thesis, and then the diegesis, and then the apodexis, and then the epilogue. What that means is Paul starts off by saying what he's going to talk about. And then he expands it. And then he applies it. And then he wraps it all up by giving his final greetings. And that's exactly how the letter to the Romans is structured. First of all, you have his prologue in which he sets out that he's going to talk about the gospel of Christ. And then he expands what that gospel is. And so the majority of the epistle, right up to, uh, well, it's, it, it starts out in chapter uh, 1, verse 16, the gospel of righteousness, and goes all the way through to chapter 11, verse 36. And then he applies it in chapter 12, the life of righteousness. And then he gives the prologue at the, in chapter 16 or the epilogue and speaks to his various friends and greets the churches and sets the scene for closing the letter. So the, the main theme of Romans is undoubtedly righteousness. But Paul contrasts it with sin. And that's why our first study is going to be on the topic of sin and righteousness. What does Paul mean by sin? He talks about it at some length. And if we are going to understand righteousness, we've got to understand what is sin? What does sin mean? What does it, how does it affect me? How does it express itself? Well, he, Paul uses every word in the Greek language to describe different aspects of sin. 
It's remarkable. You can read other writers and they don't, re, uh, they don't use as many different words for sin. But everything that you can call sin, Paul calls it that. He uses every word. He talks about missing the mark. Some of you may have heard the word hamartia. Missing the mark. Off the mark. Ah, uh, missed it. Talks about unrighteousness. Not doing the right thing. He talks about lawlessness. Contravening the law of God and doing your own thing instead of God's thing. He talks about impiety. Not reverencing and worshipping and following God. He talks about transgression, crossing the line. He talks about depravity, how it corrupts the human heart and the human life. He talks about falling away, once knowing a standard and falling from it. Sometimes it happens accidentally, sometimes it happens intentionally. It's not really falling away, it's jumping away. But out of politeness, we call it falling away. He talks about disobedience, knowing what's right and refusing to obey God. And he talks about lust, desiring what is improper and con forbidden for us to desire. Every possible word in the Greek language that can be used for sin, Paul uses it. Because he wants these people to know what sin really is. It's not just an accident. It's not just something that happens to you. It's not just something that you inherited from your forefather, Adam. Although he does mention uh, the origins with Adam. No, it's, but it's more than that. We choose, we go, we decide, we resist, we make the choice to go the way of sin. Sin, ah yes, not just the Jews, but he starts off by talking about the Gentiles' sin. And from chapter 1, verse 18, through to chapter 2, verse 16, he talks at length about Gentile sin and describes some of its worst features. I'm sure the LGBTQ community would not be very happy with some of Paul's words, but Paul just lays it out the way that it is. This is what sin is is in the Gentile world. The Gentile world follows the ways of sin. And it was most obvious in the Roman Empire. They were not going to go the way of somebody else. Oh yes, there, were time, there, was, there was authority. And there were some people, as Paul says later in Romans, 
There are some people who resist authority. It doesn't matter whose authority, whether it's the ruler's authority, the governor's authority, the local mayor's authority, or God's authority. But they resist authority because they want to go their own way and they want to decide for themselves. I wonder if there are any people like that today. Maybe there are a few people around who are intent upon having their own way and only their own way and nobody's going to tell them what to do and when to do it and how to do it and what's right and what's wrong. They're going to decide for themselves. Well, Paul, he determined that the Gentile world would know that whatever they did was not unobserved, especially by Almighty God. And so those first two chapters, he focuses very intensely upon the Gentile world of sin. But then suddenly in the middle of uh, chapter 2 in verse 17, he says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed in the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Uh-oh. You see, if you preach against stealing, do you steal? If you say people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? If you abhor idols, do you rob temples? If you brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? This is why God's name is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles. It's because of you. Because you say things that you don't live up to in your own life and in your own situation. Oh, yes. The things that the law requires are only of value if you observe the law of God. And what is the law of God? The law of God... Well, do you have to be, be a, become a believer in order to follow the law of God or just simply don't break the law? Observe the things that are right. Well, the problem with the sin of the world is simply this, that we are not relying upon God for the ability and the power to keep his requirements, to do what pleases him. It's not a matter of dotting the I's and crossing the T's on a legal statute. It's a matter of doing what God calls us to do, which is to turn from our sin to him because there's no one righteous, not even one. 
according to Romans 3.10. There's no one who understands and no one who seeks God. They've all turned away. They've all become altogether worthless. There's no one who does good. No one, not even one. Oh, yes, we have to turn from sin and rely upon God not only to forgive the sins that we committed, but also to enable us to keep his requirements, to do exactly what he wants us to do. Because the only hope is God. He's the only one who can enable us to fulfill his law because, in a sense, he's the only one who really knows what his requirements are. You see, we're born with a sinful nature and that sinful nature affects the way we think. And that's why Paul writes in chapter 8 and verse 5, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. But you are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of God lives in you. It's the Spirit of God that enables us to think God's way, to see things from God's perspective, to do what God wants. The secret uh, and the only hope that we have is in God. He's the one who enables us to do what's needed in order to glorify him and to please him. Oh, the Bible's very clear as to what the results of having a sinful nature is. Look at chapter 5 and verse 12. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death came through sin, death came to all men because all sinned. Before the law was given, sin was in the world, but it wasn't taken into account when there was no law. But death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, who was a pattern of the one to come. Ah, but the gift is not like the trespass, he says. Many died by the trespass of one man. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? You see, it's God who enables us to become righteous. It's God who puts us right with himself through what the Lord Jesus Christ did upon the cross. When we repent of our sins, and to repent means to turn from our sins and turn and embrace the cross, something changes deep inside. 
Something miraculous happens and we are no longer under the bondage of the old life and the old sins. We are now in the, by the grace of God, we're now in the very family of God and we become what we could not do, no matter how hard we tried, by our own strength and in our own way. You see, it's the Holy Spirit that makes it possible for us to be righteous. And that's why the main theme of Romans is not so much dwelling on human sin, although he deals with that at some length and in many different places, but it is righteousness. How do we become righteous in God's sight? How do we live righteously? How, what is righteousness? What do we mean by it? Well, there's just one word that's used in the Bible for righteousness. Dikaiosune, which means to choose and go God's way means to be set forth as righteous. It means to make a person righteous. It means to be justified. As Luther used to say, it's as if just as if I'd never sinned. It makes us just the way God wanted us to be from the very beginning. Yes. We are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who puts right everything that's wrong within us. And thank God he does because we don't always know what's wrong within us. All we know is that somehow we're not firing on all cylinders. Somehow everything isn't working. It's like when you get in your car and you try and switch it on and it click, click, click and nothing happens, and so you have to call a mechanic, somebody who knows what they're doing, and they'll have a look at that engine, and all it takes is adjusting one little screw, and then the thing fires off, and it goes. And you think, how come I couldn't do that? Well, because you, A, you didn't have the knowledge, and B, you didn't have the right tools to do it. But God, he has the right tools, and the right knowledge because he created us. He created us in the very first place and so he knows every little thing that's wrong with us. He knows how we're not functioning the way that we ought. He knows how our education has affected the way that we behave. Yes, we said the sinful nature affects the mind. It sure does. It affects our education because we learn things, even from observing others, that affect the way we behave when we face a given situation. We watch the way our parents react. We watch the way our older siblings react. We watch the way our friends react. And we say, that must be the right way. That's the way they do it. And so we do the same. And righteousness changes the way we think. So we begin to think in a different way and we begin to understand things 
differently. We begin to work and walk in ways that we never imagined possible. There are some essential factors to righteousness. The first factor is faith. Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. Romans 1, 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, we sometimes interpret that the righteous will come to life by faith. And yes, that is one possible meaning there. But it's bigger than that. The righteous will live by depending upon another. That's living by faith. Yes, it's that. The righteous will live in accordance with the requirements of the faith. Yes, that's also included. But it's bigger than any one of those individual ideas when it says the righteous will live by faith. It means from beginning to end, every day and the whole of our lives, we are dependent upon God for wisdom, understanding, strength. Yes, God provides us the strength to do what otherwise we would never be capable of doing. Living by faith is not a matter of not having any income and letting God provide for us. That's the way sometimes I hear people talk about living by faith. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm living by faith. I don't have any money coming in, but God provides me with the food. Yes, that, that can be included. But, oh, living by faith means day by day relying upon God for understanding, for direction, for wisdom, for everything that we need relying upon him for the strength to do the right thing and relying upon him to know what is the right thing to do. Yes, that's what it means to live by faith. Look at chapter 3 and verse 22. Chapter 3 and verse 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in, the, in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no hindrance, no limit. If you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe in him, then God's righteousness comes to you. Because there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That's the same word for righteousness. Made righteous freely by his grace. How? 
through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We'll return to look at that topic in just a moment. But oh, it is great that God, when we rely upon him, all the blessings and all the advantages and all that we need, he provides. That's living by faith. God takes us through. Second, it's an essential factor is fidelity. Well, what does fidelity mean? Different from faith. Well, faith is the exercising of faith. Fidelity is staying true to it. And staying true to it. And staying true to it. And staying true to it. It means you can be relied upon to do the right thing. It's of that consistency of character. Look at chapter 3 and verses 3 and 4. What if some did not have faith? Does their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it's written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. If our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If it were so, how could God judge the world? No. What fidelity means is that we are consistent in our application to Christ, looking to him, relying upon God in a consistent fashion. That consistency is what shows whether you're a man or woman of faith. Not just an occasional repenting and believing and then back to the old life. No. It means turning right around and going in a new direction and keeping on going because God is the one who is working in your life. Look at chapter 4 and verse 12 and the following verses. <clears throat> he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Walking in the footsteps. Yes, we can learn from one another how to walk in the footsteps of faith, just as so many did from Abraham. It wasn't just that he believed God, a one-off, and that was all that was required. No. He consistently followed God and he's the example that's set before us. <clears throat> In chapter 4, Abraham wasn't just justified, but he continued and continued and continued and continued. And all who walk in his footsteps with that sense of obedience and commitment, there's the word, 
commitment. We are committing ourselves to a way of life and will not turn back from it. Keep it up, Paul says. Keep on with it. Keep going. Don't give up. God will carry you through and you will be victorious. Oh, but where does wrath come into all this? Sometimes we need that reminder that the wrath of God overshadows and loiters almost. For when we choose wrongly, verse, chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the, suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what, be made, what may be made known about God is plain to them. God's made it plain. But since the beginning of the world, the creation of the world, not only have his eternal qualities been seen, but it leaves men without excuse. We know what is the right way. There's something within us that resonates with what we see about God and says, this is the way. Walk in it. This is the right way. Oh, but we try, we close our eyes, we try and look away, we try and look in a different direction, we try and find excuses. But no. God's way and God's judgment on those who walk away from him, that should deter us from ever walking away from God. Chapter 2, verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. There's going to be a day of judgment. We can't deny it. We can't avoid it. It's going to happen sooner or later. We're all going to pass from this life. Oh, I know when we're young, we feel healthy, we feel strong, we feel that we can do anything, we feel that we could take any risk and nothing's going to happen to us because we're young. But as we get older, the aches and pains of advancing years begin to affect our bodies. Maybe our legs don't function the way that they did. Maybe our mind doesn't function the way that it did. Maybe we got a few shakes and we realize, I got problems. I'm not all that I once was. And as we get older and older, we realize more and more that we, we're not going to live forever. One day we're going to pass from this life. And many try and blot out the idea that one day they'll stand before God's judgment seat. But let me rest assured, we are going to one day face God. Whether we like it or not, whether we want it or not, whether we believe it or not, that ain't going to change what's going to happen. 
One day we're going to stand before God. And if we have been deliberately sinful and disobedient to God, if we followed the way of sin, how are we going to justify ourselves before God? It's not possible. We know that we are going to have to face the Almighty. Ah, but that's not the end of the story. The judgment, the wrath of God, The story of God is the story of redemption. He has paid the price. Look at chapter 3 and verse 25 and the following verses. God presented him, whom? Christ Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. God's answer. God's answer to our sin. God's answer to our sinful nature. God's answer to his righteousness and the judgment that's one day going to come to all of us. God's answer is there in his redemption. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He sent his son into this world not just to make a sacrifice, but to make atonement. The very word atonement, look at it. Meant, at the end of a word, means to make. It was, it was manufactured, that word. Didn't exist before Christianity came on the scene amongst the Anglo-Saxons. And they simply took at one, put them together to make at one. To make at one with who? To make at one with God. It's one of the many words that the Anglo-Saxons were notorious for inventing. But they loved to invent. And that was it. To make at one with God. Oh, thank you, Lord. You have made us at one with yourself. You've done it all. There was nothing else that we needed to do except simply accept the fact that you've done it all. Accept the fact that you've made the way. Accept the fact that you have made it possible for us to be no longer at war with God or in disobedience to God but at one with him. That's righteousness. That's making us righteous inside. Chapter 5 and verse 12. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death came through sin, in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Ah, but what happened? What happened? The gift is not like the trespass, verse 15. For if the many 
died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Yes, my friend. You are made right with God, not because of any good thing that you have done, but because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did for you upon that cross all those thousands of years ago. That was God's plan. God knew exactly how he was going to make atonement for lost mankind. God knew exactly how he was going to make it possible for you to be right with him. He knew. He had it planned from the very beginning. That's what he said to Eve in the garden. He said that he would, through one of Eve's long descendants, notice it wasn't Adam, it was said to Eve. Why Eve? She's the woman. She needs a man in order to give birth. No. There was going to come a miraculous day and we've just celebrated it at Christmas once again when the Spirit of God would come upon a virgin and the virgin would conceive and bear a son. And that son, born of the line of the woman, not of the line of the man, the sinner, the trespasser, born of the line of the woman, that gift would be all that was needed to set us free and to make us children of the living God. Yes, and this righteousness becomes the theme of the whole letter to the Romans. Paul's constant, constant emphasis is on righteousness, being made right, being set forth as right, living right, changing from being wrong to being right, being transformed deep inside. Next week, as we look at more themes, we're going to look at the simple themes of faith and works. What do we mean by faith and works? And then the following week, we're going to look at another theme, grace and law. And then number four, flesh and spirit. And then number five, the greatest theme of all, Christ. And number six will be our last study together, the Christian life. How do we live it all out? Oh, my dear friends, there is so much to draw from Romans, so many topics that Paul deals with, and it's all his work to make it clear to these people He's never met them before. He doesn't know them. But one thing he does know is this. They're no different to anybody else. They're just the same kind of people as you and I.
are. My dear friend, if you have never experienced the power of God working in you, transforming you by the grace of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, then my friend, if you look at Romans, Paul will tell you absolutely clearly what you need to do and what you ought to do and how you ought to go about it. So much. One thing. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Delivered. Made righteous. Justified in God's sight. It's not a whole list of commands. If you observe all these commands, then maybe, maybe you'll just make it. No. It's put your faith in the Lord Jesus. Let God work in you according to his will and according to his word, according to his promise. And his promise is simply this, that everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ is transformed from being a rebel to being a child of God. That's what atonement means.